I'm melting. I am so unhappy. I hate this heat. Oh, it's supposed to be 30 degrees here today. Oh, yeah, it was bad enough yesterday. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, thanks. It's all right at the moment, but I, I can already feel it ramping up, and it's only what 9 a.m. So your microphone is sounding quite loud again. Oh, how do I turn, stop that? Gain knob on the back of your mic. Do you want me to, it's it's uh, kind of right at the top. Do you want me to put it down a bit? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, go to like uh, 25% then. Is that left or right? Uh, left. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. I've done that. Is that any better? Yes. Yeah, that sounds much better. Okay, cool. My uh, epic audio skills shine again. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. No comment. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the subject of which, have you pressed record yet by any chance? Rude. Of course I have. It just checks. Yes, I have. He says checking. <laughs> <laughs> you know I can hear your mouse clicks, right? <laughs> <sighs> Damn it, I need a quieter mouse. Yeah, very, very subtle. Very subtle. <laughs> you know me, I'm very subtle, Harrison. Yes, if there's one word that sums you up perfectly, it's subtle, definitely. It's, it's definitely the word I would use. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to We Love the Internet. My name is Harrison. And I'm Chris. And we are two geeks who love nothing more than learning new things and having a bit of a laugh along the way. We think there's no better place to do that than the internet. This wonderful resource with so much knowledge and information at your fingertips, available mostly for free for anyone who can access it. This week, we've both used it to learn about lots of little things because mm. it is our mini facts special. It is. Number 70, isn't it? Number 70, yes. Can you believe it? I know. It's time flies. Yeah, yeah. Time flies when you're having fun yeah. or um, whatever it is we're doing at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but first chris how's your week been or rather yeah, good, thanks several weeks it's been a while since we've spoken it has isn't it probably about three weeks i think something like that i think this is the longest i've gone without speaking to you since we began this yeah quite 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 strange um yeah, yeah. No, i've been good thank you um i've crammed quite a bit into that, that period of time and uh, went on a holiday with yeah. some friends you've been a busy down, boy yeah absolutely down near exeter which was good fun um we had a good week of playing board games getting some well i didn't get some burn on the beach but the rest of them did because <laughs> i'm not silly and do wear suntan cream <laughs> Yeah, you lived in Australia for a while, yeah, so you exactly. know how to deal with the sun. Ex- exactly. I did repeat this to the number of times after they were, uh, a lot, quite a number of them burned their backs uh, quite, <laughs> quite badly. I kept my t-shirt on and kept applying suntan cream because I'm very blonde and very, very, very white. <laughs> yes, when uh, when this when this uh, trip was first organised, Chris set up a WhatsApp group because Chris loves setting up a WhatsApp do, group. Do, yeah. And uh, there was a possibility that I was going to go along as well. Mm-hmm. So I was in the WhatsApp group. So uh, I was seeing all of these messages back and forth. And clearly, I <laughs> What was happening was some people were going to the shops to get things and other people were putting in their requests. So at the beginning of the trip, it was all like, oh, I'd like this type of cider. Oh, can you get these types of things? This drink, that drink. And then there was the day after the beach where it was, can you get painkillers and lots lots and lots of aloe vera gel, please? (laughs) Yep. And after sun, all the after sun. Yeah, all the after sun. And the after sun was just a, a constant thing for the rest of the whole day. Like, if only you guys had put suntan cream on, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, if only, <laughs> if only there was something that could, could have prevented this. <laughs> it's a catastrophe from happening. Yeah, because if I say I wasn't particularly empathetic after that happened. No, no, I can imagine not. Yeah, no. Keep your t-shirt on and wear lots of, lots of suntan cream. That's my advice. <laughs> I got burnt once in Australia, um, and I've oh. never done it again. Um, yeah. I, we went down, my, my boss and I went down to Torquay, which is like sort of a, a couple of hours drive from Melbourne, and uh, we went surfing. 
and I wasn't very good at surfing so I sat on the beach um, most of the day and my boss is an avid surfer so he had a great old time but uh, <laughs> I, I sat on the beach with suntan cream on thinking oh it's fine it's really cloudy it's quite cool it'll be no problem at all I forgot there's no ozone layer in Australia so yeah <laughs> I went back to work with a very bright head, red head and got yeah. pissed taken at me a lot so I never did that again yeah I'm, I'm lucky that I, I really don't burn very well um, ah. or very easily so I, I've only experienced it once or twice but yeah it's horrible it's it such is. a horrible horrible feeling <laughs> it really just is non-stop pain yes <laughs> So yeah, <laughs> that happened. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, they're good. Um, the other thing, the other major thing is, so I w- went off on holiday for a week, then had a week back at work, and then um, kind of one of my decisions caught up on me. So, so I, um, I've talked about my conservatory before in my house, and uh, I don't like it very much. And I say your thing- favourite part of your house, isn't it? Yeah, no, I really, really, really dislike it a lot. <laughs> and I would pull it down in an instant. But my my dad, who is the one who does the work around the house, refuses to do so because he thinks it's nice. So I'm stuck with this conservatory. So the, the, the decision I made to make it slightly more bearable is to replace the roof because it was uh i guess it was it must have been built in like when the house was built in the like mid 90s and it had this um plastic roof which yeah. <laughs> looked awful uh, which was my biggest well no, actually not my biggest, that was one of the problems with it it looked awful and also uh because it was plastic it didn't stop any of the heat getting in and uh or any of the cold from you know leaking out so nice. so basically in summertime it was boiling hot and in wintertime it was freezing cold yeah even and though it was nice and Nice and quiet when it rained as well, I bet. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing, yeah. <laughs> really, really loud, yeah. Even though the rest of the conservatory is double glazed. It didn't make any difference whatsoever because it's bloody yeah. plastic roof. So yeah. uh, my dad is excellent. So he basically, he, after my complaining about this, he said, well, I can make, make you a roof. I was like, excellent, good, good, good. So he one one time when I was up a few months ago doing something else in the house that I demanded, um, he, he, he took measurements <laughs> and went back to his own house with my mum and he designed and built the roof, the new roof, uh, to my requirements, brought it up, and uh <laughs> then in the week I was working. So we previously arranged that I would take the week off to help because, you know, that that's what what is my house. I should definitely be involved. But I mean it's the least you can do if you're well, coming all the way up having built you a roof to then at least help him install it. Pr- pretty much, yeah. That's that's really much the, the line I was going with. Even even selfish me was going that line. Um but he decided but with a few days advance notice that he would come up with my mum um a week earlier than planned, meaning that I was working, so I couldn't help oh. him. And and proceeded to put it all together, um well, put the frame together. Which, but my dad, um, he's in his seventies now, so he's pretty incredible. He can do all this, but he basically worked in a time when I don't think they had health and safety. <laughs> he doesn't know what it means. I seriously, <laughs> I, <laughs> it was horrifying watching him work on this. I was like, oh my god! Every time I'd go out there, like if I'd finished a meeting, or I had a five minute break, I'd go out there and find out what was going on. Oh my god! He was hanging off the roof, <laughs> Joyce hanging off the wall. No ropes, no hard hat, nothing. It was just horrifying. There was one point, when, and I was so every time we went out there, I like clear his sort of feet, the around his feet because he just dropped his tools just just where he, where he stood. I'm like, if you if you trip over one of your tools, you're going to end up with a horrendous head injury and probably die. Well, I won't do that. Yeah, but you, you but you probably will because all your tools are by your feet. Oh, anyway, yeah, it was it was very stressful week. Um, for the week after, I've worked probably the hardest in my life uh, putting the oh, tiles nice. and things on. Um, so yeah, although it's done now, well, it's, it's mostly done now. The painting needs to be done, but. Uh, it looks amazing, but yeah, oh my god, what a stressful, horrifying, hellish couple of weeks I had to endure to get that roof on. I mean, it could have been worse because we are currently going through a horrific heat mm, wave here in the we UK. Are. We 
are. So had you had you been working on the roof of your conservatory during this weather, you would have probably oh. had a much worse time of it. You're not, so, you're you not know, wrong. Small mercies, at least. <laughs> That's very true. You're not wrong there because yesterday I think it was 27 degrees here, and today it's supposed to be 30 according to the weather. Oh. And we, when we did it, it was probably I think early 20s, yeah. and they're sort of fake t- um, slate roof, basically flake slate, fake slate. Excuse me, tiles. Um, and basically, they uh, heat up very quickly in the sun. Surprisingly. Oof. <laughs> so yeah when you start laying them and you have to lean on them to put more on yeah that's pretty hot so i can imagine we completely unbearable right now yeah, so, yeah. That, that could have Thank that could God. have been a touch uncomfortable yeah mm-hmm. and certainly one side of the uh the roof is south facing so yeah it would have been all day in the sun it would oh god i can't <laughs> yeah you're right it would have been horrendous yeah we've we've been slowly working our way through um our list of diy jobs around the house oh and, nice, uh, nice. On, on my on my list this weekend um well so last week um i finally started attacking my garage oh um <laughs> which long-term listeners will know was a bit of a disaster when we moved in and I've kind of just been shoving more stuff in there and thinking I'll deal with that another day. Unfortunately, the other day came. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, when, I, when I visited with a couple of mates when, when lockdown ended, we were allowed to go to a few other people's houses again. Yeah, your, your garage is very large. It's a double yes. garage, isn't it? Yes, it's it is. Very, yeah. I was impressed at how big it was, but I was also impressed at how much, by that point, <laughs> which is obviously a month or so ago now, <laughs> you'd crammed in there. That was, uh, was good work. Well, the problem was a lot of it was stuff that was t- supposed to live in the garage and is mm. in boxes because it needs yeah. to be unpacked and then there was we had some uh, shelving units which the boxes were going to go onto but they hadn't yet so they were full uh, of bo- boxes next to empty shelving racks so it was it was taking up <laughs> twice as much room as it needed to um, but there was also a fair amount of stuff that needed to go into my room and into the attic and a couple of other places like that and uh, we had some people coming around to install a new fireplace All right. um, which was very exciting and very nice and very pretty cool. and we thought well if that's the day where we're basically you know that awkward thing where you've got workmen in the house and you don't know whether to like hang around and watch them or leave them and get on with it but you want to be nearby in case they need anything yeah yeah i i hate that i really yeah. hate it. yeah <laughs> there's only so many times you can offer to make someone a cup of tea before you really start feeling like you're in the way <laughs> so we'd arranged for joan to be at daycare all day so nice. i thought right we're, there's nothing we can really do is they're going to be making lots of noises and stuff so i i made sure i didn't have any meetings or anything so i thought right sod it that's the day we're going to open up the garage doors we're going to pull all of the stuff out put it on the drive sort it make force me to actually have to deal with it sure um so we did that and it was a um bastard of a day especially when it started raining halfway through the day which was an exciting oh no (laughs) (laughs) and i had about four or five neighbors walk past look at the pile of boxes and go oh that's a big job isn't it as if i hadn't (laughs) realized it's a big job i'm like yeah you know what you're right that is a big job really (laughs) helpful thanks guys (laughs) (laughs) so anyway part of one of the results of that was that we've got all these boxes upstairs now that need to go up in the attic sure and the attic is huge it's absolutely massive but it's not really got very many floorboards down ah so my job this weekend was supposed to be to go up, up into the attic take some measurements and put some floorboards down whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa one second <laughs> going into the attic in this weather yes exactly Are you mad? Yes. <laughs> i thought about it i saw the weather forecast and i thought no that is not gonna happen i will literally die <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you would die literally you would literally die in that kind of situation i mean if it's like what, what sort of temperature like late 20s oh yeah it, i think it got to 28 29 oh my god so and all the heat 20 rising. odd degrees to that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all, all the dusty, heat rising trapped humid, in there and, oh, oh god yeah no that would have been horrible oh. yeah there was there was a moment last night or yesterday afternoon when uh, holly was trying to squeeze past these boxes that were filling up the landing saying can you get these up in the attic soon i'm like well i could but that involves going up and putting floorboards down first and she was like okay yeah fine never mind let's not do that today <laughs> let's wait another day for that yeah that's like that's probably a job that can wait a few days i think <laughs> 
so mercifully oh, yes. I, I was saved that and uh, i'm glad i made that decision because if i'd started i th- um, i probably would have wanted just to finish because it's the kind of job where you've got to make a mess mm-hmm. before you before you finish yeah so it would have made the situation even worse so i probably would have be- felt compelled to finish it and i yeah i probably would have actually oh, you, you would have died, died. Yeah, yeah you would have yeah, died i mean heat, heat stroke death <laughs> i mean you know there's just an escape of that outcome yeah oh it's horrible i i absolutely hate this kind of heat and it's just so humid and mm. oh it's horrible it's absolutely horrible and we have a we have a my wife being south african she grew up with ceiling fans in uh, in her, her bedroom mm. so um it was one of the first things we did in our last house and one of the first things we did in this house was install a ceiling fan in our bedroom oh, okay um but even with that going at full pelt last night mm. i was <laughs> i was spraying myself with a water bottle to try and cool down <laughs> <laughs> And our poor, our poor puppy, who is a, a crossbreed poodle and a Shih Tzu, so she's got a lot of fur. I was about to mention poor Joan. I mean, if we find it bad yeah. in this situation, God, imagine yeah. when you have a fur coat in it. Well, she was she was supposed to have a haircut two weeks ago because mm-hmm. we get her haircut every four or five weeks. Sure. And because she'd had her uh, various like vet- veterinary proceedings and stuff, they'd shaved off a whole bunch of hair from her belly. Oh yeah. So we thought, oh, it's not worth it. We'll give it a couple of weeks. We'll delay it. So we her, <laughs> her haircut is now. <laughs> two weeks overdue she's going on monday and she looks like such a ragamuffin we've been having to spray her down with a water bottle as well that's why we had a water bottle handy it was just, just to spray her down and i thought oh sorry i'm gonna have a bit of that as well so i was spraying myself and spraying joan then spraying myself and spraying joan it was horrible it's so hot and but still my wife my south african wife was lying on the sofa last night with a blanket over her because no was, yes yeah yeah really yeah i don't know it, it, it upset me just to look at her to be <laughs> oh my I felt, god I, I felt uncomfortable just seeing her under this big oh. fluffy blanket that we've got oh horrible that's horrible. horrendous <laughs> but yes enough enough of us complaining about the weather i think that's very british of us but we'll uh, i think we should probably get on with it what do you reckon yeah probably a good idea as <laughs> much of anything i'm gonna melt in this room if i don't get this podcast recorded soon <laughs> yeah that's fair Okay, so mini fact special. So if you're new here, every 10 episodes we do a little mini facts special where Chris and I gather up all of the little funny stories we found whilst researching for this show that weren't quite enough to make a whole episode out of, but were funny or interesting enough to, to warrant mentioning here. So this is kind of a clearing house where we get through all these little things that we've we've built up over the last 10 episodes. Yeah, it's always good fun. We go back and forth and it's an even number of episodes, so I go first and we've prepared 10 each of these. Yeah. So brace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Brace yourself because we're starting with an absolutely not controversial topic at all, rigged elections. Oh, goody. Yes, because politics is always something of a sensitive subject. Particularly at the moment, mentioning rigged elections on the internet will get you a flurry of activity from supporters of a um, certain politician. <laughs> but hopefully this one won't be too bad as it happened nearly 100 years ago. So oh, well, you should we're, be quite safe then. We should be okay with this one. So Ho- hopefully. We're going to go to Liberia oh. and their general election from 1920. In the presidential part of that election, the incumbent president won his third term in office. Charles D.B. King had first been elected in 1919 as the 17th president of the country. He was a slight supporter of reform, but most
mostly wanted things to stay as they were. Mm -hmm. At first, this wasn't a huge problem, but as his presidency continued, the people became dissatisfied with his performance. So it was expected that his opponent in this election, Thomas Faulkner, would give him a run for his money. (laughs) Fair enough. It's fair to say that people were a bit surprised when the results showed only 3.5% of votes for Faulkner and 96.5% for King. 9,000 people (laughs) voted for Faulkner and 243,000 people voted for King, which is amazing because there were only 15,000 people eligible to vote. (laughs) I mean, if you're going to rig an election, you know, maybe make it it a little bit more less obvious that. Just a little bit, maybe. (laughs) Now, Faulkner was understandably not too happy about this and tried everything he could to overturn the election, but to no avail. He would, however, get his revenge because in 1930, he levelled an allegation towards King of supporting the sale of slaves to Spain and using slaves himself at home. This eventually led the League of Nations to set up a committee to look into the problem. The report issued couldn't substantiate the claims of slavery, but it did say that King and other government officials had profited hugely from forced labour, which is slavery and everything but name. Mm -hmm. The Liberia House of Representatives began the process of impeachment against King, but he quickly resigned before they could do so. King would go down in history as officially winning the most fraudulent election ever reported, (laughs) according to the Guinness Book of Records. (laughs) Faulkner would stand against King's replacement, Edward Barclay, in the 1931 elections, but he lost that time as well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! He wasn't destined to be president, was he? No, no. no. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> well, politics is a hard game. Particularly when your opponent's not playing fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're using everything in their power to stop you from winning. <laughs> Righty ho then. My first random fact comes from a conversation in a WhatsApp group recently. Um, and hello, Patrick, if you're listening. We have covered war and uh, the crazy things that happened during such large scale combats quite a few times over the oh, last yes. year. It is such a rich vein of silliness, after all, and um, that we, we um, pluck from. <laughs> <laughs> a rich and never ending vein. <laughs> yes, it really is. <laughs> In fact, I've talked about how, in order to feed his army, Napoleon purchased a million cans of Johnson's fluid beef for his soldiers. (laughs) Something always makes me laugh. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, check out episode 19, because you'll never look at Bovril in the same way again. No, you really won't. Yeah, you really won't. But but back to this story. What if your soldiers won't eat prepackaged processed food? Monsters. Yeah, absolute monsters. <laughs> They're for soldiers. They should be eating whatever you give them, really, shouldn't they? I mean, come on. Be grateful, damn it. <laughs> well, if that's the case, you've obviously got a big problem on your hands that needs to be solved. And so it was during the Second Italo-Abyssinian War that was fought between Italy and Ethiopia during 1935 and 1937. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Italy invaded Ethiopia, and as we all know, any army runs on its stomach. Mm -hmm. Except when you're Italian, those stomachs (laughs) have some pretty specific requirements. During the Italians' advance across the Dankil Desert in northeastern Ethiopia, some 120 miles or 190 kilometres of red rock, sulphur fields and salt deposits. Pretty awful place. Yeah, sounds lovely. Yeah, really, really nasty. It was vital that they travelled with, with as few supplies as possible so they could get to the other side quickly. It has been dubbed, after all, the cruelest place on earth by National Geographic, and they know what they're talking about when it comes to the environment. 
temperatures in the desert are regularly set at 35 degrees C or they can rise up to 62 degrees centigrade <sighs> or 145 degrees Fahrenheit. So, yeah, really quite hot. I mean, we're moaning yeah, about... That's, uh, that's, that's too hot. That's too yeah, hot. <laughs> we're moaning about 30 degrees, at least I am today. <laughs> 35 to 62? Yeah. Nah, bugger You're that. right. Bugger that. <laughs> So, so I can see why the Italians didn't really want to hang around there for especially long, especially in 1935. Being 1935, planes were a thing, so the Italians decided to use them. The Italian Air Force used up to 25 planes to airdrop water, ammunition and rations to their soldiers as they trekked across the desert. Only those rations, like I said, weren't of the pre-packaged variety. Oh no. <laughs> Do you know what they dropped, Harrison? Uh, fresh pasta? Fresh spaghetti maybe? <laughs> Not quite. The Italian Air Force ended up dropping living animals for the troops oh to butcher and cook. Oh, God. Yeah, living animals. Can you imagine how terrifying it would have been for those beasts to have been dropped out of an airplane, <laughs> shoved out, drifting, not too slowly, I'd imagine, to the ground, to the waiting soldiers. <laughs> but it didn't stop the Italians from dropping 72 sheep. <laughs> 72 over the course of the march, as well as two bulls. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're big boys, aren't they? They're going to be on parachute, those boys. <laughs> or don't put, give a parachute and then you'll make your own bovril. <laughs> oh, what a mess. And it's not like, I mean, it's not like those poor, poor sheep and bulls could have escaped. Even though, I mean, they would have had a, a parachute wrapped around them, so they couldn't. Yeah. But, it, you know, if they'd managed to get away by sheer chance, they would still have been in the desert, so they'd be dead anyway. fucking desert, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Now, now, one might argue that it would have been better to airdrop the soldiers closer to their destination with those new fancy planes that the Italian Air Force had. But no, what would I know? That's, that's nah, such a silly nah, idea. It seems like a silly idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's any anything in that. No, no, re- really not. <laughs> Freaking Italians, man. Yeah. Let's let's drop live sheep and bulls onto, yeah. our, onto our soldiers so they can butcher them. That's clearly the best option. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Okay, let's return to another source of endless fun, Mm. Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my countrymen, I love them so. It's a well-held fact that Australia is home to the most deadly animals in the world. It really is. The list of things that can't kill you in Australia fits on a small piece of paper and reads simply, (laughs) some of the plants. (laughs) Only some of them, though. Only some, yeah. Despite the incredible variety and lethality of the resident species, if you make a chart of deaths over the last ten years or so, which animal do you suppose would be atop that list? Not including humans, of course, because... Yeah, as we know, word. humans are great at killing each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, we could go from anything from a shark to a um, a, a salty crocodile. Oh, <laughs> Is that a I pissed off crocodile or a? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a salty croc. Oh, watch out, he's salty. Um, oh, I don't know. There's all sorts of spiders. There's all sorts. Of, yeah, let's go with a. Um, it's gonna be something ridiculous. Let's say kangaroo. It's gonna be something ridiculous. The, the, the fact that you spent so long having to work out which of the many <laughs> deadly animals in Australia would top the list kind of makes my point for me. Mm-hmm. But That's really between, between 2008 and 2017, horses, cows, and animal transport killed 77 people. <laughs> Now, that's more than sharks, snakes, crocodiles, and spiders combined together. <laughs> Farming's dangerous, man. 
other mammals accounted for 60 deaths. So I don't know whether <laughs> kangaroos is in there. Are kangaroos mammals? Yeah, they must be. Kangaroos are very dangerous, actually. Yeah, dangerous. I mean, I went to a kangaroo park and I saw the male kangaroos and those those boys are ripped. I tell you what, <laughs> good lord. <laughs> yeah, you want, to get, you want to get a fight on them. <laughs> Hornets, wasps and bees killed 27. <laughs> Sharks and other marine animals are fourth on the list at 26, so just just beaten by the hornets. And <laughs> snakes are at 23. No, oh, I thought they would have killed more. Well, yeah, even though the most venomous land snake in the world calls Australia home. <laughs> they, they only made it to number five on the list. Dogs killed more people than crocodiles, and five people were killed due to, quote, contact with unspecified venomous or arthropods, animals, or plants. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to go. Can't even what tell what happened go. to you. <laughs> also, your chances of being done in by a spider, the thing most people worry about, are actually very low. Mm. Spiders haven't killed anyone in Australia since 1979. Oh. So you're much more likely to be given a fright by one and die after running in the way of a passing cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah, like very, very. That's peak Australia, right there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but apparently they've got to the point now where because the snake, because the, the spiders are so bad, like anti venom and all that kind of stuff mm. is is very easily available. So it's yes. actually more likely that people see a spider, get a fright, and then yeah, if they're driving along and see one, they go ah and take their car off the road or yeah. run run into the way of a passing cow. <laughs> 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 so true. It does remind me of, uh, I think, various news, art- news articles at the time when I lived there. Uh, like the, the thing that would sort of freak people out the most was that you're driving along your car, you know, go from home yeah. to the office or whatever, and you pop your wind, your, your um, sunshield down to obviously because the sun's in your eyes, <laughs> like a, a non-venomous. Um, oh God, what's the name of the bloody spider? But anyway, this huge spider drops yeah. out and onto your lap, and obviously it's not venomous. It's not going to hurt you, but you end up sp- you flipping fright, the wheel, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> drop the car, yeah, so, overturn yeah. it, get yourself killed, and the spider walks away. Yeah. <laughs> horrible horrible yeah, things utterly <laughs> well thank you for that you're welcome <laughs> chills down my spine <laughs> talking of chills down your spine Harrison do you like roller coasters I hate roller coasters oh I love them I'm, an, yeah. absolu- I'm an absolute wuss I absolutely hate them my, uh, uh, we, we have a large theme park hit near us uh, Alton Towers which is quite famous <laughs> and uh, we went there with my sisters and um, my my younger sisters are very keen on roller coasters they love them and I refuse to go on any all day and then they managed to drag me onto this one they said it's really nice and it's really easy really tame but it turns out it was one where halfway through the ride the roller the entire roller coaster drops from one track to another and i spent the whole time just clutched down with my eyes closed and nearly shat myself and uh, <laughs> my sisters bought me this little trophy you could buy from the gift shop saying i survived the the drop or whatever this bloody awful thing was called <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, <laughs> I like. I do actually like roller coasters. I don't have the same existential fear that you have. But would you be- would you believe that the main reason the roller coaster, or more accurately, the first scenic railway was built, was because a man was worried about America's moral decline? <laughs> it seems about right. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting all the stereotypes today. <laughs> that man was one Lamarcus Adner. 
Thompson. And he, in the late 1800s, from his factory in Elkhart, Indiana, he became increasingly concerned that Americans were enjoying saloons and brothels a little too much. <laughs> How dare so, I know, awful. Free will and all that. So, so much so, he decided to do something to correct the country's moral compass and make a few dollars on the way, like any good American should. <laughs> the inspiration for Thomas Thompson's switchback railway came from the railroad track in Mount Chuck, Pennsylvania, some 500 miles away from where he lived. The track had previously been used to ship coal, but was turned into a tourist attraction. Quite a strange thing to do, but you know, it's the late 1800s. Not much, not much more tourism going on, I don't suppose. More work, I'd imagine. <laughs> iPhones hadn't been invented yet. No. So. <laughs> yeah, couldn't just look at Facebook. <laughs> Had to pass the time somehow. Now, the car that sat on this uh, nine-mile track would uh, would run towards the loading docks with a 665-foot drop at the end and an acceleration of around 65 miles an hour that came from gravity. So, it being the late 1800s, I'm not sure many people have got to the opportunity to travel at 65 miles an hour, so this must have been quite the experience. <laughs> Again, no Facebook. Simpler times. Simpler yeah, times. yeah, absolutely. After riding this, this amazing tourist attraction, Thompson sold his business and decided to design a 600-foot long and 50-foot high, that's 180 metres, or 15 metres high, into people who understand proper metrics, uh, <laughs> wooden switchback railway. He had it built in on Coney Island, that was well-known den, den of inequity, and it opened in June 1884. Whilst it wasn't the world's first roller coaster, it was the first one in America, earning Thompson the title of the Father of Gravity. Father of Gravity? Yeah. <laughs> Forget <That's> Newton. <laughs> this guy's the Father of Gravity. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> He only charged a nickel a day, but within three weeks, his switchback railway was bringing in $600 a day, wow. which would be over $16,500 today. Jeez. Yeah, it was very popular. That's quite a few nickels he had to deposit at the bank each day. Yeah. <laughs> the original ride had the cars fading sideways and a point-to-point track at the maximum speed of six miles an hour. Not quite the 65 that he experienced on that coal track. However, within a year, an oval course replaced the original tracks and sets and the seats were start um, were facing forward, making it look much more like what we would expect today. And you're racing around screaming and crying on the roller coaster. <laughs> Thompson went on to build 50 more roller coasters worldwide, earning millions of dollars in the process. And he died on Long Island in 1919 at the grand old age of 71. I think it's safe to say that he failed to stop America from sliding into hedonism, but we did get roller coasters, so in my opinion, it's not all bad. Yeah, yeah, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> <laughs> and hell, he made a lot of money along the way, so you know. Yeah, that's the important thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. It really is. <laughs> Well, talking of America, mm. tipping is always a complicated thing. I find it immensely stressful thinking about mm-hmm. whether tipping is expected or not, particularly when in America, and it's an absolute minefield. Yeah. Well, Isn't it up to like 20% nowadays? Oh, I don't know. Apparently, <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think it's like 50% tip, even if you've had a terrible time, and the waiters come over and punched you in the face with your food, <laughs> you're still expected to tip them double the cost of the meal or something. I don't know. It's ridiculous. I, yeah, sounds about right. Don't believe in it myself, but there we no, go. No. <laughs> Well, often the worst thing that can happen when you don't tip uh, and the tip is expected and you can annoy your server, maybe get a little spit in your drink or on your burger. <laughs> but for one lady in Switzerland, it was a lot worse. The lady who was visiting Zurich from Russia stopped at the New Point Cafe for a coffee and a bit of chocolate cake with her son. Hmm. When they were finished, they asked for the bill and the machine was brought over. She put her PIN number in, everything went through and off she went. Unfortunately, when she got home, she looked at her credit card bill to discover that when she 
she was handed the machine, it was asking if she wanted to add a tip, oh. not asking for her pin. Oh, no. So she had tipped the cafe 7,686 <laughs> francs. A gratuity of 32,000%. <laughs> equal to about $7,700. <laughs> <laughs> what a mistake to make. She first contacted the police and told her that they didn't consider it criminally relevant. <laughs> so she next called the bank, who said that because it was an accidental charge, not a fraudulent charge, there wasn't anything they could do. Oh, wow. So finally, she tried to call the cafe. Mm. Unfortunately, upon doing so, she found that the cafe owner had closed the cafe, taken all the money, <laughs> shut his business and declared bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> declared bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing! Luckily, after contacting some news organisations, the owner of the cafe was tracked down and agreed to return the money. <laughs> but it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> in a similar situation in Aberdeen, a man slightly overpaid for his Indian meal. <laughs> the man, who didn't want to be named for reasons that will become very apparent in a moment... <laughs> had enjoyed a lovely meal with two friends and offered to take care of the bill. I'm assuming he'd had a glass or two of wine with his meal because when he was handed the card machine, he was able to change the amount from just over £100 to £1,006,082. <laughs> I mean, how can you even change it? Because they give it to you to put your card in. What? <laughs> Incredibly, not only did the debit card transaction go through... No, the debit card? Debit card. The man himself didn't notice. It was only when the restaurant owner was printing off his final receipt that he noticed the mistake. The man very quickly called up his bank and was luckily able to get them to cancel the charge before the money left his account. How much money is having his account? Well, exactly, go through a yeah. debit card? Abdul Wahid, the owner of the restaurant, said, I looked at the receipt and then he looked at it and he just said, oh my. He then rang up his bank to say it was the wrong amount and cancel it before paying the correct amount. This has to be one of the most expensive meals there has ever been. <laughs> well, Abdul, you're a very nice man for letting him try to cancel it well done <laughs> you can see you can see why he didn't want people to know that that happened to him can't yeah you? <laughs> absolutely i'm sure in his friendship circle he's never lived it down <laughs> amazing yeah that's that's um, um, yeah that would never happen to me by the way no no of course not i'm sure no. like <laughs> don't tip <laughs> <laughs> Now, long-time listeners will probably know my thoughts on the British royal family. Mm. But if you don't and want to hear what happens when the Queen dies, check out episode 51. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the state is better at organising one woman's funeral than it is responding to a pandemic. I should be shocked, <laughs> but really, I'm not. <laughs> priorities, Chris. Priorities. Yeah, I know. It's all about the priorities, and clearly we're not priorities, she is. Anyway, back to the royals. <laughs> Did you know the Queen has a body double, Harrison? <laughs> an official one? Or- an official one, yeah, an official body double. Or somebody who you can pay to come to your party. There's <laughs> <laughs> probably those as well, but no, she has an official body double. Oh, I'm just going to make a note for your next birthday. That was <laughs> oh, oh my god, I really should have brought this up. <laughs> Now, I suppose it makes sense because, like some famous people, she can't be expected to do everything herself all of the no, time. No, of course not, no. No, that would be just outrageous. In the case of Queen Elizabeth II, her body double, one Ella Slack, stands in at rehearsals for public events attended by the Queen and plays her role. Mm. Now, I, even I have to grudgingly accept this may be necessary, as Queen Elizabeth II is now 95 years old and in 2019 attended 295 public engagements. Quite a few for a little old lady, I'll admit. Yeah. <laughs> 
God bless her. <laughs> mm. <laughs> what, what, what does Slack do then? Well, she doesn't do it, look anything like the Queen, so she doesn't take her place at actual royal events. But she does have the same sort of stature and height, which means she's a perfect body double in the sense that her dimensions are very similar. Slack said in October last year, quote, It started because I was at the BBC and the producer that was doing the cenotaph came to me and said the Queen had sent a message to say that she stood at the cen- when she stood at the cenotaph, the sun was in her eyes and could we do anything about it? <laughs> Again, back to my incredulity of the royal family. <laughs> God forbid, one monarch should get her eyes, get her, you know, sun in her eyes. Yeah, no, that's too much. Outrageous, Your Majesty. Yeah, no, completely. We get a pleb to do that for you, Your Majesty. (laughs) (laughs) Slack continued. I said to him, "Would you like me to come and stand in the position for you? Because all the stage stage managers were six foot men." She did so, and has done so on at least 50 occasions since the 1980s. Amazing. I wonder if she gets paid for this, or if it's a duty to the monarchy, because she obviously worked at the BBC as well, you, you know, can just imagine, can't you? Well, yeah, some, some people are willing to do their part for the country, Chris. Mm, yeah, no, hello, not, not me. <laughs> Slack didn't mention anything about the money in the article, so we'll probably never know. One thing, though, we do know is that Slack is not allowed to sit on the throne in the House of Lords when she's rehearsing the Queen's speech. Slack's, <laughs> this is incredible. Slack said, quote, I've never been allowed to sit on the throne of the House of Lords. I have to lurk above it. It's a very strict rule. <laughs> because, of course, it's a strict rule. Yeah, a very strict and important rule, I think. Oh, fine. my God. The insanity of the British royal family continues. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking of insanity of the upper echelons of our society, mm. there are thousands of stories of the bravery and courage shown by the RAF during the Second World War and the Battle of Britain. Yes. The aerial meat grinder that saw countless young men and women make the ultimate sacrifice to keep our skies safe and hold back the incoming enemy. Absolutely. There are stories of young men charging into battle, losing limbs, and oftentimes sacrificing themselves to bring down one more bomber, one more fighter. Work crews staying at their stations on the ground while bombs were literally falling on their heads. But it's not all doom and gloom. Take, for example, Baron Jean-Michel Longchamps. (laughs) He was... He was a Belgium aristocrat who was able to escape Europe and joined the RAF. Upon returning from a mission, he was told that his father had just been murdered by the Gestapo. So he immediately made for his plane, taking off without orders. He flew directly to the Gestapo headquarters in Belgium and made multiple machine gun strafing runs against the building, (laughs) racking the the building with bullets. That's an aristocrat I can get behind. (laughs) His machine gun run complete, he dropped a Belgian flag on the building and returns to England. <laughs> yes, upon, Batman. Upon returning, he was reprimanded for conducting a mission without authorization, for which he was demoted, and then congratulated for his bravery, for which he was given a medal, the Distinguished Flying Cross. Nice. <laughs> then there is the story of Sir Douglas Bader. He was one of the RAF's highest-ranked flying aces. He lost both of his legs in a flying accident in the early 30s while attempting to do an aerial stunt, possibly on a bet from another pilot. Jeez. He crashed, and after being pulled from the wreckage, underwent many surgeries which included the amputation of both of his legs. His logbook, written on the day of the crash afterwards, said simply, crashed, slow rolling near ground. Bad show. <laughs> <laughs> oh my 
god, he lost he both was, legs. He was 21 at the time. Oh my god, bad show. Bad show. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Unstated <laughs> British uh, tough to stiff upper lip, isn't it? But my favourite story of his <sighs> involves a trip he made to a very well-to-do girls' school in the 50s. He was invited to speak to the students on his time in the war and was regaling them with tall tales. As he was giving his talk, he recounted the following story. So there were two of the fuckers behind me, three fuckers to my right, another fucker on the left, he told the audience. The headmistress went pale and interjected, Ladies, the fucker was a German aircraft. (laughs) Sir Douglas replied, That may be, madam, but these fuckers were in Messerschmitts. (laughs) Amazing! <laughs> oh wow, that's incredible! Uh, God bless him. <laughs> God bless the RAF. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Harrison, do you know what the largest US denominated US dollar bill is? Uh, I do not know. Okay, it's actually the hundred dollar bill. So oh, it's okay, quite a bit yes. of money compared yeah, yeah. to what we, yeah, yeah. we have in the UK. I mean, we have the fifty pound note, which is uh, hardly ever seen in reality. <laughs> and if you do try and use it, people look at you suspiciously. Exactly. Think you're a drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> But back in the late 1920s, when the US economy was running hot, the US Treasury decided to print much larger denominations, including $1,000, $5,000, and $10,000 bills. Jeez Louise. Yeah, there there were practical reasons for doing this at the time. With the economy doing so well, banks and financial institutions relied on wire transfers to complete large transactions. However, in the 20s and the 30s, those transactions were very slow and unreliable. So slow and unreliable, in fact, that many institutions preferred to simply hand over a $5,000 or $10,000 bill to take care of a debt or a loan. (laughs) It's much easier. Then, inevitably, possibly, the Great Depression hit and the need for such a large currency suddenly evaporated, along with millions of Americans' hopes and dreams. Then, between 1934, sorry, December 1934 and January 1935, the US Bureau of Engraving and Printing, (laughs) a wonderful bureau, I'm sure, (laughs) decided to print... (laughs) We're a bunch of fun guys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no doubt they were. They were very nice, fun fun time guys, yeah. They they decided to print Series 1934 $100,000 gold certificate. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> you go from zero to a hundred thousand. Yeah. <laughs> These certificates were only printed for a period of three weeks and apparently looked less realistic than Monopoly money. <laughs> <laughs> but they were in fact legal tender at the time. Well good, <laughs> good luck spending one at the Starbucks. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'd like some change, please. <laughs> yeah. Can you break this note? <laughs> <laughs> You're banned. <laughs> Well, it might have been legal tender at the time, but, well, only sort of. Private citizens, perhaps for the reason you just outlined, couldn't actually use them, no. as they were only for certain Federal Reserve banks to prove to the US Treasurer that they had the equivalent amount of gold bullion held in the Treasury. <laughs> of the 42,000 bills that were printed, most have since been destroyed by the US government, perhaps not unsurprisingly, who'd yeah. want uh, a bunch of $100,000 bills running around that don't look, don't look real. <laughs> <laughs> With the few remaining ones that still exist accounted for and held by the Federal Reserve. In fact, Private ownership to this day of $100,000 bills is illegal, so it's highly unlikely you'll find anything out there outside of a a museum or a bank. (laughs) 
what did what did for these large dominated bills i won't hear you wonder well such high value bills uh, were really only useful for real estate deals and bank transfers but as i mentioned with wire transfers they actually became much faster and more reliable in the 1940s and 50s and so the u.s government government decided to obviously end their production and kill them off yeah so finally which u.s president had the honor of being shown on the one hundred thousand dollar bill any ideas oh you're testing my uh, uh i have no idea if, I, if you ask me this uh i'd say obama probably a oh, no. <laughs> mm, little bit before his time i think oh, okay. damn <laughs> <laughs> no, it was one Woodrow Wilson, ah, okay. and he served as president from 1913 to 1921 and led the US through World War One. So, yeah, possibly a quite fitting. Uh, yes. <laughs> probably ran up lots of debts in that time. So, quite fitting, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> very cool very cool mm. right well I'm sure you've noticed at the end of movies the phrase the story all names characters and incidents portrayed in this production are fictitious mm-hmm. fictitious yep. no identification with actual persons living or deceased places buildings and products is intended or should be inferred yeah absolutely very catch- catchy little bit of boy oh yeah that gets a bit, of, bit of legalese there <laughs> well it turns out that this phrase which appears in basically every movie made after about 1940 or so is because of Rasputin. <laughs> that, okay. That old that old scowl, scoundrel. Yep. yep. <laughs> that old little nutter. In 1932, MGM released a movie called Rasputin and the Empress. The movie is supposed to be the story of Rasputin during the last dying days of the Russian Empire, but it took more than one or two liberties with the truth. <laughs> one of the plot points of the movie, apart from Rasputin basically being responsible for World War One. <laughs> Involves Rasputin raping the character who represented Princess Irina. Wow. Well, well or, or maybe conducting a little, little bit of consensual. You know, they, they make mm. it. They, they don't make it entirely entirely clear one way or the other. But they 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 infer a certain relationship between the two. Sure. The problem was that the princess was still alive at the time of the movie being released <laughs> and wasn't altogether too happy about her depiction. As <laughs> I'm sure. Can imagine. <laughs> yeah. She and her husband Felix Yusupov, who, by the by, was one. One of the people involved in assassinating Rasputin <laughs> sued MGM. <laughs> Fiery Russian. Yeah, yeah, don't go the way inside of the fast side of the Russians. During the trial, the judge pointed out that MGM had made their position much worse by including the following line at the beginning of the movie. This concerns the destruction of an empire. A few of the characters are still alive. The rest met death by violence. Hmm. The judge said that this damaged MGM's case, and in fact, they would have been much better had they incorporated a directly opposite statement, making it clear that the film was not intended as an accurate portrayal of real people or events. In the end, Princess Irina was awarded more than $1.2 million, equivalent to more than $21 million in today's money and damages. <laughs> the film was removed from distribution for decades, and that familiar edition was made to, most likely, every movie you've ever watched. Yeah, it's very simple to put that in, isn't it? To cover yes. yourself legally. Uh, yes, it, with that kind of a financial hit, you can oh, understand why oh, they did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oi, oi, oi. Well, Princess Irina sorted herself out, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Bloody Rasputin. And it's always his fault. <laughs> <laughs> World War One being started—that's a new one. I didn't realise that. Yeah. yeah, apparently, according to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, three, two, one, lift off. The iconic words uttered whenever NASA launches a new rocket into space. But why countdown to a rocket launch? You might argue it's to enable the engineers and mission control to synchronise their watches and ensure everything happens on time. You might think that, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> the countdown clock actually came from a 1929 silent movie called Frau im Mond, a German movie roughly translated as Woman in the Moon. Hmm. The film was adapted from a book, and although movies with sound at the time were becoming very popular, its director, Fritz Lang, loved silent movies so much that he refused to have the rocket make any noise when it blasted off. <laughs> so, how then to get the heart, the viewers' hearts pumping? Well, he decided to add intertitles to raise the pace and engage the audience in the dramatic liftoff. So, obviously, like 10, 9, 8, 7, you know, the countdown, basically. Yeah. So, next time you're seeing a rocket launch, you have Fritz Lang to thank for the dramatic <laughs> countdown that accompanies every single NASA launch. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> right, well, seeing as we're halfway through uh, our mini fact special, let me take a moment now to ask if you are enjoying this episode to maybe have a look through our archive and find some episodes from there that you, you may enjoy, or more importantly, may be enjoyed by a family member, a colleague, a friend, whoever you think may enjoy this quality, quality content. We've already mentioned a few previous topics, but I think we've got to the point now where there's going to be something for everybody in our archive one way or the other. So, Oh, I reckon so. If you head over to wheelofthenternet.co.uk, or just search for We Love the Internet in your podcast player of choice. All of our episodes are available there. Find one, take a link to it, send it across to somebody, tell them this, you found this incredibly funny, witty, incredibly intelligently produced fantastic audio quality on one of the parts of the host's <laughs> podcast obviously me. And you, you'd think they'd really enjoy it <laughs> we, would, we would greatly appreciate it if you did we very much would okay you're a bit of a train nerd aren't you chris uh, yeah i do love an underground train actually yeah 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 you do is it, is it specifically underground you don't really care about the overground trains are they, are they a bit less less exciting yeah they're a bit here and there yeah, no, i love underground stations yeah, they, they, yeah. Um, london underground do well in the before times they did tours of their of sort of um disused underground stations yes, and things yes, oh, very, very cool, very cool. Yeah, I like that. I like do like it, yeah. And steam trains are good, but yeah, no, underground trains mainly. Okay, okay. Well, did you know that we still have request-only stops in the UK? <laughs> what? More, more than 150 of them, in fact. Request-only? So as in you have to request them to get to them? Yeah, well, no, as in you have to stand on the platform and hold your hand out oh, as the train comes to get like them to Like a stop. bus? Yeah, like a bus, exactly like a bus, yeah. <laughs> Wow, I did not know this. Yep. Well, take, for example, Denton in Greater Manchester. Mm. If you want to get to this station, you need to catch the 10.13 train on a Friday from Stockport to Starleybridge. <laughs> but don't worry if you miss it. You'll only have to wait 168 hours for the next option. <laughs> <laughs> It kind of, kind of brings up the point of why you bother have the, have the station well, operate. Well, yes, because if you manage to get there, you will be one of only twenty people a year on average who uses the station. Twenty people a year. I don't know whether that's twenty people or twenty trips. So maybe ten people, you know, going there and coming yeah. back. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, you got to be pretty much a complete trainer to get on that there for that stuff, <laughs> yeah, haven't you? Really, you really do. Yeah. And then there's the Bernie Arms in Norfolk, which serves a pub <laughs> in the middle of a field. <laughs> And not very much else. <laughs> I've just found a place we have to go, Harrison. <laughs> well, the pub is considered to be one of Britain's most remote boozers, accessible only by walking, catching a boat, or taking the train. <laughs> but just a heads up, if you're planning a trip, and apparently we are now, just check their website because they don't open during the winter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fine. Summer cider trips, fine yeah. by me. Okay, great. Cool. <laughs> to, to Norfolk we go. Uh, yes. There is a station in Scotland, Alt-Nebraic, that is 10 miles from any road and 18 <laughs> miles from the closest village. <laughs> what does it exist? It's only two stops from the literal end of the line, and incredibly, no one is entirely sure why it was built. <laughs> I love it! 
because it's literally in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Amazing. It doesn't serve anything. Incredible. No, no. Apparently, it's enjoyed by hikers and cyclists, however, who use it as the start and end of a 16-mile circuit walking route, which takes in a lot of nothing. <laughs> well, we, 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 I won't press to go there because I have a pub, so you're, you're, no. like, you're going, that's okay. lucky. Okay, yeah. It quite clearly needs a pub, otherwise you're not interested. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But the ultimate in remote stations is in Japan, mm. because of course it is. Of course. The Sairu Miyarashi station has no roads, no paths connecting it. <laughs> it doesn't even have exits or entrances. <laughs> it has only a platform which provides travellers with a stunning view of the Yamaguchi Prefecture, encompassing mountains and rivers. The name of the station literally translates as Clear Stream Viewing Platform. <laughs> It allows people to step off their train, take a moment to breathe the fresh air, admire the scenery, and then get back on the train and continue their journey. <laughs> that seems very inefficient for the Japanese, but okay. It does, doesn't it? But it's also so beautiful at the same time. Mm. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> wow, okay. The Eiffel Tower. Named after the engineer whose company designed and built it, Gustav Eiffel. It was initially meant to be a temporary structure and the entrance to the 1889 World's Fair. The French have actually named the tower La Dame de Fer, and, <laughs> or Iron Lady in English. And I'm sure that the uh, British Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, wouldn't be so happy about that if she's still alive. Anyway... <laughs> She wasn't happy about much, though, was she? No, too? yeah. To be fair, she wasn't really, no. Pretty angry lady. <laughs> Even though some of France's leading artists and intellectuals criticised the design at the time, it was erected. With one particularly acerbic reviewer referring to the newly built tower as a metal asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> The landmark has gone on to become one of the most famous and recognisable structures in the world. When most people see the picture of the Eiffel Tower, they immediately think of Paris. Yes. But the Eiffel Tower wasn't destined for Paris initially. Ah. It was supposed to be constructed in Barcelona. Only the city rejected Gustav Eiffel's plans, thinking the structure would end up looking like an eyesore. (laughs) (laughs) Sucks to be them. (laughs) Yeah, it does really, isn't it? (laughs) As I mentioned, the Eiffel Tower was supposed to be a temporary structure, and actually offered up um, a scrap um, after after the World's Fair ended, but was spared because the French army found that its 984 feet or 300 metre height worked perfectly as a communications tower, which was, <laughs> which was lucky, really, because yeah. <laughs> visitors to the iconic structure remained relatively static at just over 6 million a year before the pandemic struck. Wow. Yeah. So have you ever been up the Eiffel Tower, Harrison? Uh, I have when I was much younger, yes, ah. um, but not, not for a very long time, despite going to Paris very regularly. Oh, yes. My, my, my wife, when she was younger, went on a um a trip with her with her um, mother to paris and actually met some people from south africa at the top of the eiffel tower that they knew i think it was a, a, a traveling um sports team or something oh my god how random is that yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> yeah so barcelona lost out i'm afraid yeah well there we imagine go imagine how different the world would look if it had been in barcelona instead of paris yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. On 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 the subject of which, let's let's mm. talk about Europe. Sure. Now, uh, talking, of, we we like to uh, you know f- dive full f- face first into controversial topics here. So, mm. when discussing the benefits of Brexit, freedom from European laws is almost always mentioned. And I have to say, looking at some strange things that are illegal in Europe, I do sort of understand why. 
<laughs> for example, if you're in Portugal, it is illegal to wee in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> how would anybody ever know if you did that? Well, no one's entirely sure how this law can be enforced. But, <laughs> but, but it's, it's a law nonetheless. It's, it's there, yes. Yeah, yeah, fair uh, enough. If, if you're planning on having a baby in Denmark, you can't call it Jacob, Ashley, Monkey, Pluto, or Anus. <laughs> now, I get some of those. Jacob <laughs> yeah, and Ashley? Well, one of the one or two of those are not like the others, are they? No, I mean one one or two are not escalating as much as the others are. No. no. S- similarly, it is still illegal to name a pig Napoleon in France. Uh, this, this, law was, this law was put in place by the man himself, of course. who didn't like the thought of people naming their animals after him as a form of dissatisfaction at the government, and it's never been removed. Although not sure it's entirely enforced. If I'm honest, no. Neither is the Parisian law that forbids kissing on train platforms. (laughs) In the the early 1900s, there was a big problem with trains being delayed in Paris. (laughs) Looking into the reasons why, it was noticed that the city of love was attracting a lot of amorous lovers who couldn't bear to be parted from each other, and many were holding up trains from departing whilst having one last embrace with their loved ones. So the law was introduced in 1910 and is still on the books today. That's amazing! (laughs) And speaking of Euro, the country, the city you mentioned there, tourists to Barcelona were mm. so annoying the locals that laws were made specifically to try and discourage some of them. <laughs> One of these laws involves a ban on swimsuits being worn anywhere except on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> They were definitely targeting the British for that one, weren't they? Well, apparently people walking through shops and eating in restaurants in their swimming trunks was enough of an issue that, by law, men are only allowed to wear swimming trunks if accompanied by a shirt, and women must have the tops and bottoms of their swimsuits or their bikinis completely covered anywhere (laughs) other than the beach. And finally, one which may be greeted with a cheer by some of our city-dwelling listeners, if you're caught feeding a pigeon in Venice, you will be given an on-the-spot fine of 50 euros. Who writes? I completely agree with that. And feed the flying rats, for God's sake. I thought you might have opinions on that one, Chris. <laughs> Go Venice. We should introduce that to London. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> hate fly rats so much yeah likewise alright for me back to the royal family again because of course I've got more weird and wonderful facts about them you know for someone who doesn't like the royal family you do talk about them a lot <laughs> it's like Stockholm Syndrome I don't know what to say I think you doth protest too much <laughs> no comment right <laughs> did you know that in addition to owning all the swans in London the Queen also owns a farm and specifically dairy cow oh nice yeah no. I didn't know either to be honest with you but uh, she really really does and uh, have sorry she really does have many hands in many pies or in this case milk (laughs) (laughs) the royal dairy is located in windsor in windsor home park just east of frogmore house and was originally designed in 1848 by prince albert because of course he did he had nothing Mm. else to do Mm Dairy has recently been completed, completely rebuilt, sorry, in the Renaissance style. Because again, they have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. But, it, but the original building was used to provide fresh creamed. I, I don't know why I bothered to talk about the royal family, honestly. <laughs> used to provide fresh creams to the royal palaces on a daily basis, which must have been the height of luxury back in the day when your average Joe couldn't be able to afford to access such mm. so, so much cream so readily. <laughs> now, today, 165 dairy cows, many of which were descended from the pretty Polly bloodline that was gifted to Queen Victoria back in 1871 live on the farm today. (laughs) 
<laughs> the herd is milked, get this, on a daily basis by two robots, which apparently enables the cows to come and go as they please for milking. Because, you know, you don't want to pressure your cows into milking, no, do you? You want to no, let them no. do it on their own, own schedule. Yeah. At your own speed. Yeah, exactly. Now, <laughs> these robots can also apparently sweep up the floor, gathering all the slurry, which is then recycled into fertiliser. Wow. Now, I'm sure Prince Charles demanded that. Um, <laughs> but you know the best bit is? It's just, it's, it just boggles my mind. These cows really do live the life of luck as they have and I kid you not on this water beds to lie on <laughs> yep water beds <laughs> Mark Osmond the farm manager told BBC Country File quote basically they're a large water pillow so the cow lies down it pushes underneath the pressure points where the cow lies and the cow ends up floating how very wow. 1970s jeez yeah well yeah. I mean if, if you believe in reincarnation clearly that's the uh, that's the animal to aim for yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too right basically come back as one of the pretty poly bloodline yeah yeah, yeah. good lord cows living better than I do <laughs> yeah it's amazing what you can do for animal welfare when you're not constrained by such things as profit and loss really isn't it mm, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. there, there you go queen's cows waterbeds we've all had gifts that we were less than enthusiastic for right <laughs> has that ever happened to you Chris uh, yeah maybe once or twice uh, certainly yeah. I'm looking at a, a specific um, uh, plushy of an, of an avocado I'm looking at right now yeah. No, yeah no 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 sorry sorry gifts that you didn't enjoy uh, <laughs> I'm gifts, gifts that you don't actually yeah, want yeah yeah that, that's still still, still saying uh, yeah. that yeah. no okay, still saying fine. that yeah whatever yeah, yeah. well <laughs> Spare a thought for a 64-year-old from France who had just retired from his role in a French defence contractor. Mm. As part of his retirement surprise, his co-workers drove him to an airbase. The man, who managed to keep his name out of the news reports, had no aviation experience and indeed had never expressed an interest in flying. But that didn't stop his co-workers <laughs> from arranging for him a trip in a Dassault Rafale B fighter jet. <laughs> My God! Now, given this news, it made the man, I'd say, quite understandably, very nervous. Mm. In fact, his watch alerted him that his heart rate had increased to over 140 beats per minute. <laughs> just being told that this was what's going to happen. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Now, I think this man might actually have been British because, asked later why he then got into the plane that he was obviously terrified of, he said that he felt that because of social pressure, he had no choice but to go along with it. <laughs> I mean, I don't yeah. know about you, but I would be telling them to sod off at that point. Yeah, but my heart rate's going 100, yeah, 140 beats per minute, they definitely head for the car, yeah, that's not, yeah. That's not healthy. No, no, for he climbed aboard the fighter jet and assumed his place in the rear seat. <laughs> On takeoff, the man was subjected to four Gs of pressure. <laughs> As the plane soared to its cruising altitude of 2,500 feet, wherein the pilot performed a manoeuvre to allow his passenger to experience 0.6 Gs, (laughs) the same as the weightless training that astronauts using their (laughs) their vomit common, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Now, the man was not expecting this last manoeuvre and panicked. (laughs) Unfortunately, the safety proceedings had been a little bit lacklustre, presumably because this was arranged by mates of the people at the airbase. And the man, who had no experience in jets, let me remind you, Mm -hmm. was allowed to adjust and set up his own gear. What? As a result, his visor was up, not down, his oxygen mask was unattached, his seat harness was loose, and his helmet was unfastened. Oh my god! (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, no shit, he panicked. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Worrying that the end was nigh, he grabbed for the nearest handle to steady himself, which, unfortunately, <laughs> turned out to be the ejector seat. <laughs> The canopy was blown away with explosives and the man was ejected from the plane. (laughs) The pilot was supposed to be ejected as well, but the mechanism failed, meaning that he was left behind and luckily able to land the plane. Yeah. His passenger was not as fortunate. (laughs) The man and his seat were propelled into the air. His helmet, which wasn't attached, (laughs) fell off. As did his oxygen mask, which also wasn't attached correctly. <laughs> Luckily, his parachute deployed and he landed in a field near the German border. Amazingly, he sustained only minor injuries, but suffice to say, he hasn't gone back for a second trip. <laughs> I wonder what his heart rate was when he got flung out of the plane. I imagine the watch probably doesn't go that high. <laughs> no, it probably doesn't. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. Okay, the the avocado plushie looks much better now. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the British really are a nation of tea drinkers. Mm, And if you're in any doubt, in 2018 it was reported that the average UK consumer uses over two kilos of tea in a year. Good lord. Yeah, that's a lot of tea, man. (laughs) With Tetley being the biggest brand that people turn to, accounting for 27.3% of the market. Wow. Why am I already... Why am I reinforcing what we already knew? That the British are a nation of tea drinkers. Well, it's because we're so obsessed by tea that even the British Army's main battle tanks and armoured fighting vehicles have had tea-making facilities built right into them since the end of World War Two. <laughs> God bless this ridiculous country, though. <laughs> don't, don't give up your tea, chances. I mean, seriously. The official name for this facility was the Vessel Boiling Electric. I mean, obviously an engineer came up with that name. <laughs> it's very snappy. <laughs> oh, yeah, very much so. But it's usually abbreviated to Boiling Vessel, but the men on the ground, it's usually called the Kettle or the Bibby. Yeah. They're not engineers, they're soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Boiling Vessel draws power from the vehicle's electricity supply and enables the tank's crew not only to make tea, which is obviously extremely important, but also cook food and boil water, which are less down, less, you know, less, less, less requirements i guess <laughs> before, before installing the boiling vessel tank crews had to disembark to brew their tea which during a war would be not ideal one would say <laughs> we spent all this money encasing you in this really protective layer of metal then you're then going to get out of it to make a cup of tea <laughs> you can sort of see why they decided to put this vessel boiling electric into the into the uh, tank can't you really oh god bless but what us. i love <laughs> oh yeah what I love most about this is it's an official requirement to install the boiling vessels into British tanks and that this is unique to the British Army. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can take a Brit out of his home but never dare take his tea away from him because no. that way will spark rebellion. That's just not done. It's no, not done. That's no, absolutely not. not. Chap. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've spoken about the Olympic Games many times on this oh, podcast. Yes. And as we record, the 2020 Tokyo Games, which had to be delayed because of COVID, are about to begin. Mm, I'm sure there's going to be stories coming out of this. <laughs> I'm sure nothing will go wrong, don't worry. No, no, not at all. Obviously, this is a chance for the most incredible and gifted specimens of humankind to travel from around the world, compete on the global stage, and shag each other senseless. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> it's a fairly well-known fact that the Olympic Village, the area where the athletes stay, is turned into a 24-hour party brothel during the Games <laughs> with attractive young fit people doing what attractive young fit people do in a display of pure hedonism. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's what the media will have us believe. <laughs> but it certainly seems that more than a little bit of Olympic nookie does occur. Speaking to media discussing the 2020 Games, the ex-German athlete Susan Teitkel, who competed at the 1992 and 2000 Games, said sex is always an issue in the village. The athletes are at their physical peak at the Olympics. When the competition is over, they want to release their energy. There is one party after another, then alcohol comes into play it happens that people have sex and there are enough people who strive for that (laughs) (laughs) there is a constant cat and mouse game happening between athletes who want to get it on and their trainers and organizers of the games who most certainly don't They make it very clear that no one is allowed to engage in a little bit of how's your father until after the games are finished, lest the competitors use up too much energy. (laughs) But this isn't always the case. In 1988, during the South Korean Games, organisers found used condoms littering the roofs of their buildings, so made an official official rule outlawing outdoor sex at the games. But this year, of course, social distancing is a thing, Mm. and officials are encouraging competitors to not engage in any unnecessary social mixing, close interaction, and there has been a renewed attempt to entirely ban Rumpy Pumpy at the Games. (laughs) Every year, thousands of condoms are given to the athletes, and this year is no exception. The only difference is that the event organisers are urging the athletes to take them home with them, not to use them at the event, (laughs) suggesting instead that they maybe take them home as souvenirs. <laughs> oh my god when this request was met with polite mockery they took things a step further and issued people with anti-sex beds <laughs> these beds are made from cardboard and are designed to be able to take Shut the weight up. of one person only oh and god. will collapse if they experience any sudden or rigorous movements <laughs> I mean, who, who who thinks these things up, honestly? Well, as one person pointed out on Twitter, it might just be possible that the strongest, fittest people in the world will be able to figure out a way to have sexy time standing up. <laughs> it's almost like bureaucrats don't understand this sort of thing. Yeah, who'd have thunk? <laughs> well, I, I for one can't wait for the stories to come out from this Olympics. Yeah, well, I was, I, was reading, uh, I was reading something just this morning before we recorded that apparently already, I think, three Three people have tested positive for COVID. <laughs> there was um, an official, uh, and then there's now been two athletes who are on the same sport as that official who have now tested oh, positive. Oh, amazing. So it was only a matter of time, wasn't it? Let's yeah. be honest. I- I'm sure that Pingate will eventually stop all the athletes from <laughs> partaking. Because just too many will be being pinged them in contact. <laughs> Why the Olympic Committee ever thought this was going to happen, I don't know. No, I don't know either. Oh, who knows? Dear. Yeah. Okay. Way back on in episode 15, I talked about a cat that met a very sticky end during some CIA experiments. (laughs) (laughs) I know, yeah, poor little cat. (laughs) It was really quite horrible. It turns out the researchers enjoy working with or on, I don't know, cats because... In 1929, Professor Ernest Glenn Weaver, along with his research assistant, Charles William Bray, conducted research on a feline that, well, let's just say, probably wouldn't be allowed in 21st century-based ethics guidelines. Oh, dear. Yeah. (laughs) Weaver and Bray were based at Princeton University, and they decided to test how sound is perceived by auditory nerves. They took an alive but unconscious cat and turned it into a telephone. Yeah, a telephone. (laughs) 
Now, you might want to skip the next bit if you're a cat lover, and I totally understand why you might want to do that. So give you a couple of seconds to scramble to find the pause button or the fast-forward button. Yeah, yeah. I, c- I can't think of many ways you can turn a cat into a telephone that are beneficial to the cat. Mm, <laughs> no, yes. Or not, you're, not particularly intrusive to the cat. Yeah, you're, you're quite right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so if one last chance if you're more interested in, in welfare well, feline welfare than science fast forward and pause now because we're going to press on at this moment <laughs> okay you don't get to fast forward and press, press oh, pause good, Harrison good. <laughs> <laughs> Weaver and Bray decided to date the cat and then according to the Princeton University website quote opened its skull to better access the auditory nerve oh, charming oh god yeah really charming once access was gained, the pair attached the telephone wire to the nerve. Oh my god! And the other end of the wire was content- connected to a telephone receiver. Bray-, Bray then proceeded to speak into the cat's ear, whilst Weaver would listen through through the receiver some fifty feet or fifteen meters away in a soundproof room. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, kind of as bad as the CIA, isn't it? Really. What were they hoping to achieve with this? <laughs> well, well that's, that's, that's a good point. What did the experiment prove? Well, it showed that the frequency of the response in the auditory nerve is correlated to the frequency of the sound, which they didn't know before they attempted this uh, experiment. Okay. Weaver and, and, Weaver and Bray, Bray proceeded to perform other tests that included restricting blood circulation to the cat's head, oh, God. which they found completely cut the transmission of the sound of the receiver. Well, who knew? <laughs> they, they did it afterwards, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Once they well, did their experiment, they did they did realise, yeah. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, the pair were not particularly interested in the practical use of their discovery, <laughs> but more that the research was conducted, because that's what they were interested in. <laughs> but the, the research they did do did lay the foundation for cochlear implants, the devices that convert sound vibrations into electrical signals to the brain. So even though the cat research that the, t- the pair <laughs> did back in 1929 may not have been possible today for reasons of ethics, it certainly did enable people to hear more po- uh, to hear possibly for the first time because of the cochlear implant. So well done, I guess. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't. The, funny enough, the Princeton University website didn't say if the cat survived the procedures. I don't think they did. No, I can't, I can't imagine that that went very well for the cat. No, no, no. no, no. no. Not being as politely as Princeton University put it, opening their heads up. Yeah, mm, goodness. There you go. Yeah. Oh, right. So, shall we move on? <laughs> Let's. Well, welcome back, people who love cats. So, I'm, I'm not sure if you noticed, Chris, but we uh, we just had a football. Uh, mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. Kind of party vibe, but sure. My understanding is that it was supposed to be coming home, but because of an administrative cock-up, it went to Italy instead. <laughs> Damn it. These, these things happen, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, football is a funny old game. I mentioned in our last mini fact special that the fastest red card took only two seconds to be handed out. <laughs> listen, listen back to find out why. Yeah. The uh, the rich cultural history of football is full of similarly stupid facts. <laughs> Did you know, for example, that the first ever football match broadcast on TV in 1937 was Arsenal versus Arsenal? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? It was a specially arranged match to test the cameras to see if they could capture the game, and Arsenal's first team played their reserve team. <laughs> Who won? Do you know? Arsenal. <laughs> Fair play, well done. In 1979, a Scottish Cup game fell foul of the stereotypical Scottish weather and had to be cancelled and rescheduled because of heavy rain. <laughs> Falkirk was supposed to take on Inverness Thistle on January the 6th, but the match was postponed not once, not twice, 
Not 10 times, but 29 times. <laughs> 29! <laughs> Always for bad weather. <laughs> Oh my god. In the end, the rain stopped just long enough for them to play on February the 22nd, 47 <laughs> days late. Yeah, winter weather in Scotland is not, 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 uh, not no, ideal, not let's put it that way. Fal- Falkirk managed to win, but they got knocked out by Dunkirk three days later. <laughs> <laughs> Staying in Scotland, Aberdeen's home ground is an old Gaelic word, pitodrie, which, when roughly translated into English, becomes shit heap. <laughs> <laughs> or, or possibly place of manure or hill of dung, depending on your particular <laughs> preference. I, I like the first day. Uh, first one was just to the point. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Finally, a couple of red and yellow card stories for you. Mm. Colombian defender Gerardo Bedoya holds the record for most red cards in a career with a quite frankly staggering 41 sendings off (laughs) did he think it was like wrestling or something well maybe because his last one was a doozy playing for Santa Fe he elbowed a rival player and when he'd fallen to the floor kicked him in the head for good measure didn't want him to get up did he no, apparently not no <laughs> <laughs> and then we go to the ultimate gold mine sunday league football oh levi foster was having his boots inspected by the referee before the game when he farted straight into the ref's face <laughs> The poor official was, of course, quite upset by this and was about to send him off when he noticed that the rest of the pitch had collapsed into laughter. (laughs) And Foster was able to talk him down to a yellow card instead. (laughs) Yellow card. After the game, Foster did admit to having had a curry the night before. (laughs) Good love Sunday League football. It's not exactly the basis of athletes, is it? It's not. not, No, it's not. Wow. <laughs> what a beautiful game. What a beautiful game, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and now we come to my last fact for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. It's about an assassination, and I can't go on without mentioning episode three, where you, Harrison, <laughs> talked about various failed assassination attempts. <laughs> Including the time that a guy tried to kill Queen Victoria only to fail and be set upon by the crowd. Yes. Well, I mean, that was that was happened multiple times <laughs> since someone attempted to kill the Queen, failed and had the shit kicked out of him by a local crowd. <laughs> now, this story might have a different outcome, but it's probably just as bonkers as those stories you told in that episode. So if you want to hear about some failed assassinations, go and check out episode three because it really was very funny. We're going to talk about William McKinley, who was the 25th president of the United States and the last president to have served in the American Civil War. Perhaps unsurprisingly, he enlisted as a private in the Union Army and ended up being promoted to a major just before the war ended. McKinley became US President on the 4th of March 1897 and served until he died of his wounds in an assassination attempt on the 14th of September 1901. But it's interesting how the attempt on his life happened. You see, McKinley wore a red carnation on his lapel from the time of his first political appointment as a member of the US House of Representatives in 1885 as a good luck charm. It served him well and he rarely took it off when um, when he was out in public. The day he did, however, on the 6th of September, he was visiting the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. Whilst touring the fairgrounds and meeting thousands of well-wishers, McKinley found himself face-to-face with a 12-year-old girl called Myrtle. He apparently said, quote, I must give this flower to another little flower, which he duly did. Oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah. Didn't, didn't, what's not, what happens next isn't nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
in what would turn out to be either an incredible, horrible coincidence or an eerie piece of evidence towards Lucky Charms having very real power. Minutes later, he was shot twice in the abdomen by an anarchist named Leon Chilgosh. Just as the Queen, just in Queen Victoria's case, the crowd immediately turned on the would-be assassin and beat him. But incredibly, McKinley, with his dual abdomen wounds, shouted to his security detail to rescue the man, uh, most likely saving his life in the process. <laughs> Unfortunately for McKinley, the doctor at the aid station was only able to find one of the two bullets that were lodged in his stomach, even though a primitive X-ray machine was being exhibited at the exposition ground. Though, to be fair, it was probably likely that no one knew the power of the machine <laughs> in the chaos and the confusion that ensured that yeah, followed yeah. the assassination attempt. <laughs> <laughs> McKinley was taken to Milburn House where he died eight days later despite the do- initial doctor's prognosis of being positive and what of the assassin well he was put on trial for the murder of the president nine days later and sentenced to death his execution was carried out on the 29th of October 1901 by electric chair so whilst McKinley might have saved him from the crowd he did die shortly after yeah, not for long <laughs> no not for very long at all and what of the lucky red carnation would he have saved McKinley's life if he'd given, not given it away it does seem unlikely as the assassin was intent on murdering the president yeah. <laughs> funnily enough being an assassin and all <laughs> he had tried the day before to um but he had unsuccessful been unsuccessful and tried to shoot mckinley because he didn't think he could get close enough to the podium to take an accurate shot with such a determined assassin it seems unlikely that mckinley was probably doomed mm, unfortunately yes. so yeah yeah there you go well there you go if you've got a lucky carnation don't take it off that's what I'm <laughs> no let's actually go and buy one <laughs> yeah quick or many <laughs> it's okay i'll find one on amazon for you and send it oh, no, please, please don't let's big as big as possible that. i think no, the bigger no, the carnation the more lucky it is no, I think no, that's no, how it please, honestly don't do that no, it's, cool. it's, it's not a problem it's not no, a problem really, I don't want I, you to I'm, get shot I'm pleading here no I've got the app open right now don't worry I'll oh, find it no no, no no oh god it's okay I'm a prime member you can get it tomorrow don't worry <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that concludes our third mini fact special. Isn't it our third? It is, yes. Yes, it is. Giant, blimey. Time yeah, flies. It does indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. If you have any feedback for us, perhaps you've got some mini facts you can suggest for our next mini fact special, or you've got any feedback at all for any of the topics we've spoken about, you can get in touch. If you head over to weloftheinternet.co.uk, you'll find links there for all of our very social media presences around the web. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can send a good old fashioned email if you'd like to do so. We'd love to hear from you if you've got any suggestions for future topics or any feedback for anything we've spoken about thank you very much and we'll see you next week see you bye